0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Direct quote, stand your butt up then. Quote, you stand your butt up. Not a schoolyard. That was today in the United States Senate. The lead starts right now.
2: I'd love to do it right now.
1: Well, stand your butt up then.
2: You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on, Big Oh, hold,
1: stop it. Heated exchanges on Capitol Hill, one in the Senate, another in the House, involving former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and actual physical violence. And just down the block, a massive rally on the National Mall with a specific goal, supporting Israel, denouncing anti-Semitism. One rally attendee has a brother being held hostage by Hamas. He'll join me ahead. Plus an emergency request for an emergency protective order after leaked evidence in Fulton County, Georgia shows co-defendants of Donald Trump explaining efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results with shocking new details that you have not heard before. Welcome to The Lead. on Jake Tapper. We're going to have much more on that massive rally in support of Israel and against anti-Semitism. Just ahead, you see images right there. But first, if you thought congressional Republicans were maybe a little bit uncontrollable, as evidenced by this latest threat of yet another government shutdown, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Today brought actual Republican-on-Republican Republican physical violence on the House side. And in the other Capitol chamber, a Republican senator threatened physical violence against a witness during a hearing. Not a spoof, not a satire, not news reporters taking lighthearted moments and twisting them for our own nefarious ends. I'm dead serious here. Let's start with what happened in the supposedly more gentlemanly Senate, where the fisticuffs were only theoretical and the assault did not become actual battery. In the Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. There was a hearing today called Standing Up Against Corporate Greed, How Unions Are Improving the Lives of Working Families. And in that hearing, Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma read a tweet from June, a tweet written by International Brotherhood of Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien, a tweet that said this. Said, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you wanna run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults, we can finish it here.
2: Okay, that's fine, perfect. You wanna do it now? I'd love to do it right now.
3: Well, stand your butt up then.
2: You stand your butt up.
3: Oh, hold on,
2: oh, stop it. (laughs) Is that your
1: solution every problem? No, no, sit down. That's right,
4: you're a clown. Sit down. No, okay. you're, no, you're a United States Senator.
1: Now, to the House, where Republican Congressman Tim Burchett said, and at least one reporter witnessed with her own eyes former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy elbowing Burchett in the back, right in the kidneys, he said. Recall, Burchett was one of eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy from the Speaker's chair. It was a clean shot to the kidneys, and I turned back and there was, there was Kevin. He's a bully
3: with $17 million in a security detail. You know, he's the type of guy that when you're a kid would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt.
1: McCarthy, who we should note has lied about plenty of other things, like, for instance, the 2020 election, denied shoving or elbowing Burchette. It also just so happens that former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, in his brand new book, writes that he, too, was pushed twice by McCarthy. What on earth is going on up there? Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, you know, I, the dysfunction among uh, House Republicans has been apparent to us for quite some time, um, even on this day that the House is supposed to unite and vote to avoid a government shutdown. But physical violence... And from a former speaker, no less?
5: Yeah, this is all quite a scene, Jake. And after the unprecedented vote to push out Kevin McCarthy more than a month ago, but the tensions still remain, and Kevin McCarthy feels he was treated unfairly. He even told me just in a few days ago that he believes Congressman Tim Burchett in particular was someone he was surprised at that voted him out and said that Burchett is interested only in press, which is why he believes he had done just that. McCarthy responded to the allegation that Burchett made that he essentially sucker punched him in the kidneys from behind and walked away. He said that that did not happen that way. In fact, McCarthy tried to make the case that this was a narrow hallway in the Capitol that he may have accidentally grazed him and continued to walk along the way. And he didn't understand why Burchett was so mad, claiming none of it was intentional. If I hit somebody, they would know I hit him. I did not elbow him. No, I would not elbow him. I would not hit him in a kidney. HC5, you're all down there, right? Not a very big hallway. And then I asked him about the claim from Tim Burchett that he was still in pain. Burchett told me moments afterwards that he was in pain still from that alleged hit and in his kidneys. He essentially, McCarthy did, uh, shrugged it off, said, oh, come on, if he wants, bring a trial lawyer and also... Uh, Jake, Matt Gates, who led the charge to push out Kevin McCarthy, plans to file an ethics complaint to force an investigation. G- McCarthy also brushed that off and said, "Matt Gates, that's one place he belongs to be, and the ethics committee." Jake.
1: We should note that our colleague Brianna Keeler asked Republican Congressman Ken Buck about McCarthy denying this, and uh, Ken Buck, Congressman Ken Buck, a Republican, said, "Kevin McCarthy and lying is like peanut butter and jelly." Now, um, about the near blows that erupted during that Senate hearing of all places, Uh, What is Mark Wayne Mullen? What does Senator Mullen have to say about that?
5: Well, he doesn't regret it at all. In fact, that is the exact question I put to him. Do you regret this? You're a United States senator. He said that he called me out. I was just answering the call. Don't say something. You're not going to back up. He said that. I said, well, you're the you're a senator. He said he's a president of a union. I'm still a guy from Oklahoma. And he made clear that he was defiant in comments he made to our colleague Sam
6: Fossil.
3: You don't do that. You don't run your mouth unless you're going to answer the call. I didn't start it. I didn't tweet at him. I didn't go after him. I have no beef with a guy.
5: And he went on to say that he has not spoken to Republican leadership about this yet. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate GOP leader, was asked about these episodes. He said, I don't view that as my responsibility to deal with it. He said that's something the Capitol Police will have to deal with. Jake.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the issue, though, is, of course, doing it in the senate during a senate hearing right it's not so much responding to the union president it's where he did it right
5: yeah absolutely and he says that he said he says that he was raised differently jake that is his explanation for why he said they said we settled things differently where i'm from in oklahoma so he is not regretting what he said at
1: all jake okay Manaraja, we're going to come back to you uh, this big uh, house vote coming this hour that's much more important than all these shenanigans, thanks so much. Uh, but let's talk about these shenanigans. Uh, Sean O'Brien, president of that union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, uh, is, is here. Uh, and, and Sean, I have to say, uh, I'm sure you're, you're plenty strong, but Mark Wayne Mullen is a, is a poor, former professional MMA fighter. What went through your mind when he basically challenged you to a physical fight during a Senate hearing?
2: Yeah, you know, look, what, th- what went through my mind was, you're one of 100 of the most powerful people in the country, and you're acting like a 12-year-old in a schoolyard because you didn't get your way. I mean, look, he actually has the ability, and he's 100 of the elite, to actually effectuate change in this country, and he's focused on being a bully. You know, we're not gonna stand for it, and we definitely were brought up differently.
1: Okay, but can I say, you're tweeting like a 12-year-old. I mean, your tweets were, were... You're not a United States senator, okay? And and I get that your tweeting is not the same thing as calling somebody out during a Senate hearing. But, you know, you know where to find me anyplace, anytime, cowboy. You're making fun of him for not being the tallest senator. I mean, you represent 1.3 million workers. Do you really think that tweet, there's the tweet right there with your pink circling of uh, the Apple box he's standing on. Do you really think that that is best serving, best representing uh, the members of the Teamsters Union?
2: His story is compelling but inaccurate. And in a hearing in March, he started the whole thing by coming into a hearing, looking at us and basically saying to me, I'm not afraid of physical confrontation. As a matter of fact, I welcome it. Mm -hmm. So that's what perpetuated the whole incident. Never knew the man in my life, never met him. I was testifying in my first Senate hearing and that was his first introduction to me.
1: And you were at the hearing today, Bernie Sanders hearing, which is about how unions improve the lives of workers. Are you afraid that that message was lost because of this?
2: Not at all. I mean, we had some great dialogue in there about issues that affect working people, about organizing, collective bargaining, unionizing America. And there was a lot of different uh, opinions, a lot of different debate. And it was great until uh, Mark Wayne Mellon, obviously, we're renting space in his head, decided to erupt. Um, You know, we do have a lot of differences of opinions on both sides. But the one thing that's clear is that today's dialogue outside of what happened was fruitful, productive, and the one thing we've been doing as a Teamsters Union, I do represent 1.3 million members, and I do it uh, in the best interest of my members, we've been reaching across the aisle Mm -hmm. uh, to find common ground on issues that can help working people throughout America, and we're going to continue to do that. And unfortunately, today, uh, uh, Mark chose to not act like a U.S. senator, and... uh, uh, he's going to have to pay the consequences for that.
1: What's the best thing the Teamsters is fighting for its union members right now? What's the be- thing you're proudest well, of right now that you're fighting for right now? We are
2: fighting corporate America. We are, we are closing the gap between you know CEO greed and uh, what our members are getting in their contracts. Um, UPS is a prime example. We've got a $30 billion contract, the highest contract ever at UPS, uh, and we are starting to take back. Uh, what we've invested. I mean, think about how important Teamsters were, essential workers providing goods and services during the pandemic.
1: All right, Sean O'Brien, good to see you. Great, thank you. I wouldn't want to mess with either you or Senator Mullen, to be quite honest. I appreciate your being here. Thank you very much, sir. Hold on, don't go anywhere yet. We're still talking to the camera. We'll we'll escort you out in a second. Despite all the tension, we're standing by for a major House vote. It will test the leadership of the new House Speaker. This vote is expecting this hour. We're also watching that rally on the National Mall. Massive crowds turning out in huge numbers to denounce the alarming rise and anti-Semitism in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. For many of the people there, it's personal. I'm gonna talk to a a man who attended the rally. He has a brother currently being held hostage by Hamas. Stay with us. You're looking right now at live pictures from Washington, D.C. at the mall, where thousands and thousands have gathered to denounce anti-Semitism and show support for Israel in its war against Hamas. And also to keep focus on the hostages. There are an estimated 239 people, including Americans, uh, still in captivity of Hamas terrorists and other terrorists, other terrorist groups, uh, kidnapped on October 7th. CNN caught up with Sarah Blau. She's a student at the University of Maryland. Take a listen.
7: We went to high school together, and we are very good friends. He is an incredible guy. Everyone loves him. He's funny. He's kind, charismatic. He's a natural-born leader, and everyone's really being impacted really heavily by this. I wanted to show my support for Israel. I'm a proud Zionist, a proud Jew, and I wanted to be here to support my community.
1: Uh, Here with me in studio right now, uh, Gal Gilboa Dalal. Um, He and his 22-year-old brother Guy were attending the Nova Music Festival. They were there to celebrate music, celebrate peace, celebrate love. Uh, Instead, of course, Hamas uh, turned that festival into a bloody massacre. Uh, During the fighting, the two brothers were separated. Eight hours later, Gal's father uh, called to tell him that his younger brother Guy had been uh, kidnapped and taken hostage to Gaza. Uh, Gal, thank you so much uh, for being here. I'm so sorry it's under these circumstances. Uh, we'll so much, be, yeah. I know your, your brother's picture's on your shirt. We're also gonna mm-hmm. be showing his picture um, throughout uh, this, this interview. So you attended the rally today in DC, um, back in Israel. Um, families of hostages started a five-day march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. There's uh, you and your brother at the Nova Music Festival. That's right. It's a sweet picture.
8: It's a picture that they sent like 15 minutes before it's happened. Is that right? He yeah, uh-huh. waited for me at the interest as I got in, he took the picture and uh, sent it to our mom. Oh. Yeah.
1: Um, so there's this five-day, there's a protest going on back in Israel, this, this march uh, of families from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I know a lot of families are frustrated. They don't think that the Netanyahu government is doing enough to get the, to get the hostages home. They want the swap to, to happen as soon as possible. They want getting the hostages home to be top priority, the number one priority over anything else. Um, what do you think?
8: You no, know, I think that in uh, this situation, it's hard to, to know how to, to manage and um, everyone doing what they can. Now, as a, as a family of a hostage, you know, all I can think about is my brother. And all I can think about is what I can do to help him and what I can do to promote this, uh, uh, this thing. Um, and right here, you can see um, a lot of protests uh, from the family hostages. Um, if they are right or not, um, if they help or not. I, I'm not sure, but uh, we're uh, we all doing what we can, and we want them uh, back home, and that's where we march. We march not just for our government, but for everyone to see, it, for everyone to understand, um, and that's one thing that uh, we can do. Yeah, we, it's we, impossible
1: uh, to know what's right in a situation like this. You, exactly just, right. you just want your brother home. Um, so you showed that selfie, let's show it again, uh, the last picture you took with uh, the with, uh, guy uh, just before the attack. What happened after uh, that picture was taken?
8: No, he was waiting for me at the entrance, and he took the selfie and sent to our mother as soon as I arrived there, and uh, then he took me to his camp. Now, he went there with his three friends, and he waited for so long for this festival. It was his first festival. Now, it's not just a music festival. It's a spiritual festival. The people who go there, they really celebrate life with peace and love, and this is their beliefs. this is the way they live their life, not just uh, celebrate. And I wanted to go with him to make sure that everything go okay, uh, you know, to be part of his ex- experience, to watch he's over him. your little brother. Yeah, he's my little, he's my baby brother. Yeah. He's 22 years old, I'm 29. But it's like we don't have this kind of uh, difference in our ages. Uh, you know, he, we share the same interests, we share the same hobbies. Um, he's my best friend. So, yeah, I feel I should go and uh, be with him. And I arrived 15 minutes before the incident started and he and his friends were so happy to see me. They were so joyful. Uh, you know, it was just beautiful to see them uh, at that moment. And he wanted me to go to the dance floor with him, but I didn't have time. I mean, in 15 minutes after I arrived, the sirens has already started. So, um, so once the sirens started, we, you know, in Israel, you think uh, about missile attack.
1: Right, there's always, Hamas rockets are always coming in, yeah.
8: Always, we, we get used to it. Uh, and you don't think there's a terror attack, uh, not in this kind of scale anyway. Um so we, f- we figured that we should get out of there as soon as we can. Now the security guards, they told people to either take cover or to get out. So we figured we should get out of there as soon as we can and we went to each to to his own car. Now before I went to the car, I went to my brother and asked him if you want to join me in my car, because he and his friends were supposed to go to my place. Um, And and he was like, he paused for a second and then he told me, "Uh, look, I came with my friends so I can't leave them, uh, but I will come to your place and see uh, when, when we get there. Um, now, I told him that I would wait for, you, uh, for him in my car in the exit uh, and I started to go to the exit and since our cars, they didn't park next to each other and everyone were trying to get out on the same time, yeah. um, we just, we weren't in the same location, he was way in the back, I was way in the front uh, of the traffic. Uh, at one point, the traffic was just stuck, uh, the exits were closed, um, I was surrounded by cars that didn't move uh, and, then, and then the shooting started, a massive round of shooting started from everywhere. And we, could, we couldn't see the terrorists yet, but we could hear the bullets, uh, whistles. Uh, the bullets uh, went up overheads, uh, hitting the cars. People were, were starting to fall all around us, uh, starting to run in panic. Um, and I, I, I had to find a cover. So I got out of my car and I ran to a valley that was next to me. Uh, I found a cover between two bushes uh, and I called to my brother. Um, he said that he is still uh, at the area of the festival. Uh, He he was having a hard time to uh, get out of there with his car, so he and his friends get out from the car and find a better place to take cover. Uh, At this point he was with four cops, Israeli cops, Uh, so I told him the most reasonable thing to say. I told him stay as close as you can to our cops, to our forces. Makes sense. Yeah, of course. And stay hidden, stay in the cover. Um, Now, I couldn't stay on the line with him because, you know, at at that moment, people were starting to run to to my direction. Uh, Some of them were covered with blood. Mm. They were yelling that we should uh, get out of there because the the terrorists closing on us. So, I had to close the call and I called him again 30 minutes after when when I found a better place to hide. Um, Except then he didn't answer anymore. He didn't answer the phone. Yeah, I called him and I called his friends. And none of them answered. And my parents started calling me, telling me that my brother isn't answering them. And you know that's when I really started to panic because if four of them don't, uh, yeah, if, and if and don't all the four, of them, yeah, exactly.
1: And their phones were eventually traced to Gaza.
8: Um, so yeah, you know, after eight hours of running and hiding, uh, running and hiding, uh, we were able to send our location to a force that were near us. They were, actually, they were off duty. They came especially for a friend that was uh, hiding. Uh, on the same location. And they were able to locate us and get us out of there while they're still shooting. And as I said, it was eight hours after it started. And it was two and a half hours after my brother's hostage video was released by Hamas. And I didn't know about it. Um, I, got out of, I got out of there and I called my father. And he sounded broken. and asked him if something happened to my brother. And he told me that there is a hostage video of him from 11 and a half a.m. I only got out of there at 2 p.m. And, was uh, he was
1: he one of the guys in the back of the
8: truck? No, uh, it's not a kidnapping video. It's oh. a hostage video. Oh. You can see him already in Gaza, cuffed, uh, okay. lying on the floor. Uh, him and another four other uh, uh, kids that were at the party. You can see him there with his best childhood friend. He was taken hostage with him, but the two other friends that went uh, with them, they both were murdered: Ron Safati and Idan Ramati. Yeah. Well, we're going
1: we're gonna to keep covering the hostages. We're not going to forget about the hostages. We're going to keep covering them, and uh, we'll, we'll keep talking about Guy. Um, and we thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And sir. we're going to keep talking about him, and, and hopefully we'll be talking to both of you soon.
8: Yeah, I wish. That's so important. I, I know. Keep talking about the hostages. We're thank not going to so stop.
1: Much. We're not going to stop. Gal Gilboa, Dalal, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Coming up, CN up close, showing one of the most complicated factors of this war, Hamas and its tunnels deep inside Gaza, underneath houses, underneath hospitals. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep
0: Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
9: I'm Dr.
10: Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern.
4: That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned.
10: Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're back with our world lead. The White House and Pentagon today confirmed my reporting yesterday that the U.S. has intelligence suggesting Hamas is operating a command center under the al-Shifa hospital in Gaza in a war shaped by what is beneath the ground in Gaza as much as what is above ground. CNN embedded with Israel's defense forces to see Hamas's notorious underground tunnel network for ourselves. We're about to walk you through what we know and what we do not know about this underground system. But first, our viewers should know, as a condition of embedding with the IDF, they requested we only show officers. We do not show the faces of soldiers and we do not show sensitive equipment. CNN's Nick Robertson's back with us. Nick, show our viewers what you saw when the IDF spokesperson showed you that first tunnel there.
11: Yeah, we, it was a tunnel that was in a hut in a residential neighborhood. And the interesting thing about the tunnel was it had a carefully concealed lid, tiled floor. If you looked at it normally, you wouldn't know it was there. It was 20 meters deep, had a big ladder going down into it. And the cables that were running into it from the electrical switchboard and communication switchboard above ran from a house close by that the spokesman who was talking to there, you see in the pictures, um, that he was telling us was a house belonging to a Hamas leader so uh solar panels on the roof of that house powering the tunnel network down below and they told us they put a robot down the tunnel uh and it had connected through in the direction of the nearby hospital he said they hadn't proven the connection all the way but that's what they were investigating when, when we were there looking at it jake
1: and you were reporting all this just a couple hundred feet away from an active firefight uh between the idf and hamas
11: yeah, this was, uh, I think, part of uh, the, the situation there that I don't think we were quite aware of when we went into. And the spokesman said, "Look, I've taken a big risk bringing you into this combat area, but I really want you to see it. It's important to the IDF. Uh, he believes that the world should see these these tunnels and the connections to the hospital nearby. And so, yeah, there was a big gun. Well." firefight going on about a hundred yards away there were bullets whistling overhead you can hear that zing as they go by and you know that you know that's really close and he was he was ducking for cover as well we ended up getting behind one of the big armored uh, military vehicles there just to stay out of the line of fire but uh this was this is where the fight is with the idf right in the streets right now and uh, didn't see any civilians there at all the buildings around there very heavily damaged but uh yeah it was right right there close to the front lines.
1: And you saw what the IDF says are are Hamas weapons um, and and a motorbike and a piece of clothing in hospital
11: rooms. Tell us about that and what that might reveal. Uh, weapons that were found in the basement of the hospital. Uh, We didn't see the weapons actually found, but the spokesman said the weapons had been found there. Uh, He showed us a motorbike that had a bullet hole in it that he said was uh, used by Hamas on October 7th. I pushed him at Y and he seemed to indicate some kind of aerial surveillance. They might have tracked the motorbike back to the hospital. And then there was a room that had a chair in it with women's clothing on it and, and a rope around the feet of the chair. And so, you know, obvious conclusion, female hostage here, right? So I asked him that question. He said, can't say for sure. Obviously going to investigate it, do DNA tests. There's a woman's hair band on the floor. We know from the, from, uh, the people, the doctors uh, who'd been in the hospital previously before it was evacuated, that the downstairs of the hospital had been used by families trying to escape the fighting. Uh, so maybe the clothing comes from there. But he wasn't making the definitive hostage connection, merely the possibility of DNA testing, he said, to give them better evidence evidence or information on that
1: and, and they can our viewers on what we still do not know and, and why it's so difficult to report on these tunnels
11: yeah we we don't know the whole network of tunnels we don't know if uh hamas commanders are still down there we don't know if the hostages are being kept down there or what which tunnels they're being kept down what we got from the idf today was that they're getting greater and greater control over the northern part of gaza we heard them today it sounded like big explosions uh Possibly blowing up some of these some of these tunnels, but there's a lot more I think for the IDF to get into the tunnels, find out exactly what's down there, um, and learn more about Hamas and the hostages.
1: All right, Nick Robertson in Stuart, uh, great reporting. Thank you so much. In Tel Aviv today, more protests. Many were families of loved ones held hostage by Hamas. Their demands of the Netanyahu government next. Plus, this just in, President Biden arriving in San Francisco, making the cross-country trip ahead of his major meeting tomorrow with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Why this one-on-one meeting is such a big deal this time around. That's ahead. Welcome back with our world lead today. President Biden said a deal to release hostages held by Hamas is, quote, going to happen. And he assured the families of hostages visiting Washington, D.C. right now for the rally Quote, hang in there. We're coming. Joining us now, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. So as you thanks know, there are not only families of, of hostages here in Washington, D.C. There are hundreds of Israelis uh, of, of whose family members are, are nearing day 40 in captivity, kidnapped by Hamas. And they're marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem uh, to demand that the Netanyahu government makes releasing hostages. It's number one. Priority. They want a swap with Hamas. They want more being done. They don't think enough is being done. Um, Are they right?
12: I I I fully understand them, and I think that we should do everything in our power to keep it like the number one priority. But I'm sure, and I know that also Prime Minister Netanyahu's first priority is the release of our hostages. Uh, But you know, there are many tactics to try and make it uh, happen. Part of it, obviously, is to continuing pressuring Hamas, attacking them, going after them wherever they are. This is maybe the, the only chance to get the release of the hostages.
1: We've heard of talks of a potential swap with Hamas releasing Palestinian uh, women and Palestinian teenagers that are on in, in Israeli prisons for hostages. Is that being discussed?
12: Well, obviously, I cannot comment on the details. It's it's quite sensitive, also the timing. But we are willing to do many things in order to get the release of the hostages. But let me clarify, we're not going to give up the second goal of the war, which is eradicating totally Hamas terror capabilities. Otherwise... We will see these atrocities happening again and again and again, as the Hamas spokesperson uh, himself uh, said, which poses a real threat uh, towards our future.
1: The IDF confirmed today uh, that IDF soldier Noah Marciano was killed uh, while being held hostage by Hamas. Hamas says that she was killed because of an Israeli airstrike. Obviously, we have no idea of knowing if that's true. Um, What can you tell us about how she was killed?
12: (sighs) Look, I I don't know the exact details, but again, it's quite clear that Hamas is exploiting, they're doing everything in order to pressure Israel to stop its military operations. So this is another ruthless, vicious way to put pressure on Israel to stop striking uh, the terrorists of Hamas, because they want to put the blame on us for supposedly killing the hostages. But again, it's not going to stop us. They they should be the only ones that will be held accountable for their war crimes and will continue to fight them. So there are lots of calls for
1: a ceasefire. And I understand that Israel is not gonna do a ceasefire because you feel like you need to destroy Hamas. It is the worst kept secret in the world that Jordan hates Hamas. Egypt hates Hamas. The Saudis hate Hamas. Very few Arab leaders actually like Hamas. Yes. Um, have any of these Arab leaders, and you don't have to name them, but have any of them come forward and said, here is a way forward. Here, Here is a, like, we'd like you to stop bombing, and here is the way you can also get Hamas out and also get your hostages back. No.
12: No. Uh, you know, I represent Israel uh, in the United right. Nations. I never heard of any constructive suggestion, uh, because the Arab League, sadly, you know, they play their political games based on their internal political interests. So even though, as you mentioned, some of the Arab leaders, for for them, the Muslim Brotherhood, which Hamas is like a subsidiary of uh, Muslim Brotherhood, poses a real internal threat they cannot say anything publicly to support Israel. I mean, for many of them, we're doing now the dirty job and by fighting Hamas. And I'm sure many of them want us to destroy Hamas' terrorist uh, capabilities. But sadly, that cannot they cannot say it publicly. The sad thing is that the UN, instead of understanding it and supporting yeah. Israel, because this will also ensure a, b- a brighter f- future for the people of Gaza. They are being oppressed by Uh, Hamas, Uh, Hamas exploited, you know, all the money that was funneled into Gaza, turned into into its war machine. So now we try to to make a a better future for the people of Gaza. But but of
1: course the problem is you're not only killing people who are in Hamas, you're killing civilians. I understand you're gonna say that you're trying to avoid it, but you are killing civilians. And I know that there are a lot of people, office holders, public officials in Washington, People who are stalwart allies of Israel, who support Israel, Republicans, Democrats who say, "We support Israel, but they are not doing enough to avoid civilians." How do, how, let civilian me, casualties.: First of all, Democrats, Republicans who love I Israel. Know, I, I, and they I, say, I, "You're not doing enough."
12: How do they know it? How do they know that we're not doing it? They're on
1: the intelligence committee. They're in I, the government. They're in the Biden administration. So I,
12: I know very well how we approve uh, uh, military strikes in uh, densely populated areas like Gaza. And we all should must remember that Hamas is the one embedded himself within and under the civilian uh, But that uh, doesn't population. mean you can strike everything. No, no, not at all, not at all. But we are, you know, we are abiding, by, we are we abide by international law. We're doing everything in our power to mitigate civilian casualties. But this is exactly Hamas's script. They embedded themselves inside Gaza because they know that they want, number one, to attack our civilians. They cannot defeat the Israeli defense forces, the military. So they attack the civilians. They want to terrorize them, you know, making them afraid for their life. They right. may be thinking of leaving right. Israel because Israel is not a safe place. And, and the second part of their strategy is to co-opt the international community to pressure Israel to tie our hands. We cannot play by their script. We have to eliminate terrorists. That is something that so, should unite all of us. Congress, and we are grateful for the support that we receive. I, I met dozens of members so of Congress how, today. How,
1: here's my question. How many Hamas... Members, how many Hamas terrorists has Israel killed? Do you know? Do you have any idea? Do you have a rough yeah, life? I have
12: an idea? What? Thousands. Only on October seventh we killed more than twelve hundred terrorists, until now many more thousands. We can't believe five thousand, ten thousand? The numbers are, you know, we are trying to be... When are you going to stop? We are not the Ministry of Health in Gaza that is being controlled by Hamas. We try to be responsible. But here's
1: my question. If there were about 150,000 members of Hamas, including the government, right, before before October
12: 7th, you're not going to try to kill all 150,000. When is enough? Because... uh, We you will know when it's enough because then Hamas will stop functioning in in Gaza as the the rulers of uh, Gaza. But at what
1: point? Because obviously you're killing a lot of civilians and obviously at some point it becomes self-defeating, right? At some point, if you haven't reached it already you're
12: undermining your own moral authority. But, Jake, the, the reality is different from the way you describe it. We are opening more and more humanitarian corridors. We are safeguarding and helping uh, the citizens of, of uh, Gaza to leave the war zones. So w- you will see that uh, I, we, hope, we hope sooner rather than later that Hamas regime will collapse in Gaza, and hopefully it will happen
1: soon. So you said something shocking on CNN last week, you, you denied that there's a humanitarian
12: crisis in Gaza. No, I did not. You did not? No, I did not. Is I, there a
1: humanitarian crisis in Gaza?
12: Yes, there is, but I will clarify again what I okay. said in uh, on State of the Union. Yeah. I said that there is a clear definition by uh, under international humanitarian law. What does it mean, a uh, humanitarian crisis? How many liters of water? Per day uh, a person needs to have. Obviously, the life in Gaza is terrible. It's terrible. But it's the responsibility of Hamas. We are now fighting uh, Hamas because we were attacked by Hamas. We were forced to fight uh, inside Gaza. No uh, Israeli mother wants to send her child to enter Gaza. None, no Israeli mother wants to right. do it. But we are forced to do it because we're fighting for our future and we're doing everything to mitigate civilian casualties and and I'm not saying that the situation there is is good but we're also helping the humanitarian situation in Gaza we are allowing now hundreds of trucks to enter with water with food with uh, medical uh, equipment we are facilitating every initiative to uh, establish field hospitals whatever we can do to help the civilians in gaza we will do first of all because it's moral the moral thing to do but secondly because it's part of what hamas wants to have hamas wants to show the world more and more palestinian casualties, they want to severe and deteriorate the humanitarian situation because they understand that will help them to survive as, as, as a regime, that, do you as have a terror any, regime.
1: Last question. Do you have any idea time-wise how close you are to ending this phase of the war in terms
12: of... I can, I can assess that it's a matter of weeks. A matter of weeks before yes. this phase of the war yes. ends because it is... And again, we hope, we pray that it will end uh, sooner. All right. Ambassador Gilad Erdan, thank you for taking our questions. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jay. We'll be
1: right back. A new government report on climate change warns that the risks from extreme climate events are increasing. However, the report points to surprising new realities for some cities. CNN's Bill Weir has been to one example, Buffalo, New York.
13: There's an old joke that tells us there are only two seasons in Buffalo, winter winter and the 4th of July. But in the age of global warming, the city wants you to know that now their weather is going from punchline to lifeline. Thanks to its Goldilocks location amid the Great Lakes, Buffalo has never reached 100 degrees. You get, you know, on average, about three days in the summer get to be 90 degrees or higher. Yeah. I mean, if you're, in, if you're in Phoenix, you're looking at that and saying, what the heck are you yeah, calling that a heat wave? Wild. And when Professor Stephen Vermette did a deep dive of the records, The Buffalo State climatologist was shocked to find no increase in droughts or floods. There was this epic snowstorm last winter. Yes. Really deadly and destructive. Blizzard of 22. But that's not uh, an indication that those are going to get worse? No, because we had the blizzard of 77, the blizzard of 85, 81, blizzard of 36. I'm not saying that our severe weather is going to disappear. It's still there. In fact, snow amounts have remained steady in all of this, it doesn't seem to be getting worse. Mm-hmm. And that's the key here. We're still going to have severe weather, right. like the wind and, and everything else. Right. But we're, it's not going to get worse. I got to say, it's pretty ironic and, and telling about the world we now live in that a place sort of associated with cold jokes
14: right. and right. Super Bowl losses
13: could be a huge winner relative on a hotter planet. That's, you know, that's, that's the way we look at it as well. There was a professor from Harvard that was talking about the effects of climate change and listed some cities that uh, would be considered climate refuges in the future. And uh, Buffalo was one of the cities on the list. And so uh, we just leaned into it. We are going to not only call ourselves a climate refuge city, but do the kinds of things that are required uh, to be welcoming with migration, with new Americans coming here, with seeing the first population growth in the city since the 1950 census. After Hurricane Maria, 3,000 Puerto Ricans became permanent Buffalonians. It was hard.
15: When the hurricane start, what we do, we move from the second floor, we move to the first floor.
13: Including Anthony Matei, who is now a teacher's assistant.
15: I remember when I moved here, people told me, oh, you know where you're going? Because in Puerto Rico, it's always warm. It's hot. And I said, no, and I moved here like in winter,
13: but I like it, it's good. Did you consider other spots or or what, what, what was it about this place that appealed to you the most?
7: The Great Lakes, the freshwater, the projections of climate change look like Buffalo might have a climate more like New York, Philadelphia towards the end of the century
13: wildfire smoke helped drive Holly Jean Buck and her family out of Southern California. And as a climate scientist, she says she was welcomed with open arms and employment.
7: But really the energy of the people, people who are really forward thinking in Western New York and New York state about what opportunities there might be in clean energy and clean tech um, and how to build, you know, those solutions in ways that are good for communities.
13: So it's not just the the latitude, it's the attitude.
7: Yeah, exactly.
13: <laughs> right? Yeah. And the welcoming spirit of a place, I suppose. The, the city
7: of good neighbors, they call it.
13: Oh, nice, yeah. nice. And you found that to be the, the case?
7: I have, totally. Yeah? Yeah.
13: And they have abundant fresh, and they have abundant fresh water from the Great Lakes and hydropower from Niagara Falls, Jake. The old line about the three rules of real estate being location, location, location. mean, more than ever in the
1: age of climate change. Bill Weir in Buffalo, New York, Wolf Blitzer's hometown. Thanks so much, appreciate it. Coming up, the leaked videos that led the top prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia, to ask for an emergency protective order. We're gonna show them to you. Stay with us.
16: The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. And
1: welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden just arriving in San Francisco, preparing for his first meetings ahead of his one-on-one tomorrow with Chinese President Xi Jinping, this time unlike any of their past conversations, plus a defining vote for the new House Speaker. But does he have bigger problems? His GOP colleagues are now physically throwing blows. A House Republican will be here to talk about chaos in his conference. And leading this hour, New video of co-defendants of Donald Trump spelling out in chilling detail efforts to overturn the 2020 election with some new details you have not heard of before. This bombshell new video is out of Fulton County, Georgia. The Washington Post and ABC News obtained a series of recordings from the parts of the statements made by four of the defendants as part of their plea deals from Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, former pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbrough, former Trump campaign lawyers Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and Georgia bail bondsman Scott Hall. Now, remember this case stems from efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. 19 people were charged, including Donald Trump. Many revelations in today's news, including the Post report that Kenneth Chesbro, the architect behind the campaign's plot to put forward slates of fake electors, Chesbrough admitted for the first time that he played a role transporting documents signed by fake electors from Wisconsin to Capitol Hill. Those bogus electors were intended to be used as part of a plan to throw our democracy into chaos so Trump and his team could steal democracy from you. It gets worse. Trump attorney Jenna Ellis said that in late December, weeks after the election was called for Joe Biden, and Trump had run out of legal options, Ellis said former White House aide Dan Scavino was unfazed. And you might wonder why. Why would he be unfazed? The answer, according to Alice, well, it's quite chilling.
7: I uh, emphasized to him. I thought that the, um, the the claims and the ability to challenge uh, the election results was essentially over because of the dismissal of the Texas versus Pennsylvania case from the United States Supreme Court. And he said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, "Well, we don't care, and we're not going to leave." And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump, and everyone understood the boss. um, That's what we all called him. Um, He said, the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care.
1: We don't care. The boss is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. Those are quotes. Good Lord. Here's how Trump's attorney, Steve Sadow, responded, quote, the only salient and telling fact is that President Trump left the White House on January 20, 2021, and returned to Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. If this is the nonsense line of inquiry being pursued, it is one more reason that this political travesty of a case must be dismissed, unquote. Now, look, I don't know. I'm not an attorney. But plans to be a squatter in the White House while preparing a plan that ultimately uses violence to prevent the counting of electoral votes. It seems like to me that could be a salient and telling fact. Again, I remind you, I'm not an attorney. And then there's Sidney Powell, an attorney. On video, she tells prosecutors that Trump believed that he'd won.
3: Well, he knew he'd been,
1: he was, all
3: his instincts told him he had been defrauded, that the election was a big
1: fraud when you say his instincts, did he ever describe that in any way? Did he ever point to any kind of proof or evidence or anything he was getting from his other attorneys or experts?
3: Well, he talked about, you know, seeing the vote totals roll backwards on the TV.
1: Yeah, see, that's not evidence. And he did not see that because that did not happen. Like so many claims Trump makes about the election, he did not see vote totals roll back on the TV. That's in somebody's mind, maybe, not a fact. It's actually provably and demonstrably false. Powell goes on to divulge that she pressed Donald Trump to appoint her special counsel in a December 18th Oval Office meeting. And if he had done so, she says she would have tried to seize election equipment. She even said she had considered using the military to get that equipment. Tellingly, Powell admits she had never even practiced election law before. When prosecutors asked her, why Trump would rely on her for legal advice on election law when she had never worked in election law before, she responded, quote, because we were the only ones willing to support his effort to sustain the White House. I mean, everybody else was telling him to pack up and go, unquote. Hmm, I wonder why. At this point, Trump's attorney general and his White House attorneys who did have experience in election law, they were telling him he had lost the election. Just to get an idea of how tense things were, in the office at that time. Listen to this.
14: You remember the uh, December 21st meeting with Phil Waldron and um,
4: uh,
14: Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani that you went to? Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah, that's the one where Rudy got really ugly. There was a big shouting match in which Rudy called me every name in the book. And I was the worst lawyer he'd ever seen in his life. Uh, There were no circumstances under which he'd work with me on anything. He called me a Hmm.
1: And then we got this clip of Georgia bail bondsman Scott Hall. He tried to claim he was merely a political tourist flying to rural Coffee County on January 7th, 2021, when the voting systems were breached. It was a $10,000 charter flight. Prosecutors asked if he was reimbursed.
4: You could be the cost of that one. I did. No one at University
13: for that. I've been, pardon my French, but I've been through this
1: whole thing. You and the whole country, pal. With me now is CNN anchor of the source, Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, these videos were leaked to the Washington Post and ABC News. Now, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis wants an emergency protective order to prevent other leaks. What do these videos tell you about the case that Fonnie Willis uh, has been building against Trump?
7: Well, she's not happy that they came out, Jake, and she's denied that they came from the district attorney's office because her concern and what they've said in this uh, emergency request for a motion to seal is that they're worried that it could lead to intimidation of these witnesses or harassment of the people that you see there. People clearly like Jenna Ellis, someone who spent a lot of time on the phone and with Donald Trump and around him in this time period and obviously could has a lot to potentially offer to prosecutors in this case. But I think what we pick up from these videos and what you see in these interviews is kind of the roadmap that prosecutors are going down with each of these witnesses. Maybe not entirely surprising, but we're seeing what they are confirming to them for the first time. And we've seen Fonnie Willis do this before, Jake, with other RICO cases where a lot of people have been indicted. A lot of people have gotten plea deals and often those plea deals in the past have led to potentially incriminating information that can be used to bolster her case against the remaining defendants. And so we don't know that that's going to happen in this case, but it very clearly appears to be the direction that she's headed with at least these witnesses and these co-defendants who have now taken guilty pleas.
1: Caitlin, I want to play another clip of Sidney Powell obtained by ABC News. Take a listen. What
14: was President Trump's reaction when I guess this cadre of
1: advisors would say you lost. It was like, uh,
3: well, they would say that and then they'd walk out and he'd go see, this is what I deal
1: with all the time. This is what I deal with all the time, all these reality based people. But it does show that he was told repeatedly that he lost the election.
7: Yeah. Well, she said that he was listening to his instincts when it came to whether or not he lost the election. He certainly was not listening to the actual attorneys inside the White House and other senior advisors who were telling him that he had not. And I think it goes to the point of this. And this could be potentially something that helps Trump. It's not totally clear where she says that she genuinely believed that Trump thought he had lost or that he had won the election. That's a question of whether or not that is something that Trump's attorneys tried to use as part of their defense here, because the question is, is anything that these these co-defendants are coming in and saying now that they've taken guilty pleas, is it something that directly implicates Trump himself? And I think that is what the path that you're seeing them pursue here. But when it comes to Sidney Powell, I mean, that is why he was listening to crazy attorneys and that December 21st meeting that she was asked about, or is team crazy and team normal, because they were listening to them because they were telling him what he wanted to hear here, which is that he had won the election, which he had not.
1: And going back to Jen, Jen Ellis' claim of what Dan Scavino told her that Trump was just not going to leave the White House. He was just going to keep holding on to power. You were uh, the White House correspondent uh, for CNN at the time. Do you think he really was just going to squat, stay there forever?
7: I think some people certainly feared that. I mean, when you listen to other, Alyssa Farrah Griffin made this good point last night about Dan Scavino is that, you know, he's someone who was a golf caddy for Trump that came up, that Trump elevated him. He became. Uh, obviously, a manager of his social media, that's what he was known for and became to kind of have this brain like Trump when it came to tweeting. But he also was a deputy chief of staff inside the White House and had a very high ranking position inside the West Wing. And he was someone who was making that comment at a Christmas party at the White House, Jenna Ellis says, but still, regardless, was making that comment to an attorney who was representing him. And so... I think that there was certainly a lot of fear inside the White House and trepidation about what exactly was going to happen that day. And that was alleviated when he did actually get on Marine One and leave Washington hours before Biden's inauguration.
1: All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. I want to turn to Republican strategist Kevin Madden and Democratic strategist Karen Finney. Kevin, when prosecutors asked Sidney Powell why Trump would use her for legal advice when she had never practiced election law before, which by a pretty good question. Um, She said it's because they were the only ones willing to support his effort to sustain the White House. Listen to this clip obtained by ABC News.
3: I was the most experienced federal practitioner of the group. Did I know anything about election law? No.
1: What does that clip tell you about who would be in a Trump administration if he gets back in the White House in a second term?
15: Well, I think it tells you that um, anybody who's experienced and anybody who's qualified um, would uh, not be in good favor with Donald Trump. I think what he always has done is surround himself Uh, is with enablers, folks who are going to um, provide him all of the uh, leeway he needs to operate just as he sees fit. And the only thing he really cares about is Donald Trump. He has a contempt for the law. He has a contempt for protocols. He's always focused on what's good for Donald Trump. And if you think about what the advice that he got from people like Scavino and even uh, Jenna Ellis and others, that was pretty much in line with what Donald Trump wanted to hear. Um, So that's, I think, what's jarring about some of this video, is that we're finally seeing them, like all of these enablers, when they are faced with, you know, uh, under oath having to deal with the, the truth, that they come in contact with, you know, um, they, 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 they come face to face with their own lies and it doesn't work out well.
1: So, Karen, um, Sydney Powell still seems pretty out there, I have to say. Jen Ellis, mm-hmm. uh, maybe less so. Um, I want to read you this from the Washington Post quote Powell told prosecutors she still believes. <clears throat> Pardon me. Still believes election machines uh, flipped votes for Biden and believes many past elections have, have uh, been flipped, too. Quote, Bush stole Ohio in 2004, she said. But they pressed her on the issue, asking how she can know that after admitting that she doesn't personally understand how the machines work.
16: Mm-hmm. And she also said she actually doesn't know election law either. I think that was it. So doesn't know how the machines work, doesn't
1: know election law. But just
16: wants to go out there and just say whatever. Future
1: special counsel says about.
16: Exactly. Look, it shows, I mean, there may be a legal reason why she is trying to continue to make the argument that that is what she truly believed and that she believes that is what Trump truly believed. Uh, Obviously not true. Uh, Joe Biden did win the election. But, you know. And
1: and so did George W. Bush. Yes,
16: she did. Um, (laughs) However, I think the thing I would point out the, it's all very jarring but we've seen this movie before time and time again with the trump team clearly things are happening behind the scenes he's saying something publicly that we know not to be true later we find out even the people who were saying backing him up knew it wasn't true and in this case you know, with the dan scavino comment and the comment today from the trump team again trying to walk it back right and i think it is a reminder to us that we have to take very seriously everything donald trump says all of the threats because clearly he meant it
1: yeah yeah we all take it seriously kevin karen thanks so much <laughs> good to see you you heard her here first israel ambassador to the u.n told me moments ago he assesses israel can end this phase of its war with hamas in quote a matter of weeks the situation on the ground there now before that happens. That's ahead.
13: Can you address
17: the Israel?
4: hostages directly and give them a message of hope and resilience to these struggling
6: Yes, I can. I've been talking with the people involved every single day. I believe it's going to happen, but I don't want to get into detail. What's your message for the families? Hang in there, we're coming.
1: President Biden expressing his optimism today about the potential release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. A senior U.S. official tells CNN that an agreement could see the release of dozens of women and children kidnapped in the October 7th attack in exchange for a sustained pause in fighting. In Israel, family members of the hostages held by Hamas who have grown impatient with the Netanyahu government have begun a five-day march from Tel Aviv to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office in Jerusalem to demand action. For the release of all the hostages. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is live in Skirot, Israel, and Nada Bashir is live for us in Jerusalem. Jeremy, where do the negotiations stand at this hour?
17: Well, Jake, you just heard President Biden expressing some optimism about the prospects of a deal, saying that he believes it's going to happen. And now, at the same time, a senior U.S. official is telling CNN that Israel and Hamas are inching closer to a potential deal. Uh, And despite that optimism, though, and the very real progress that is being made, that appears to be being made in these negotiations, it's important to remember that just a few weeks ago, we thought a deal was perhaps in hand, and then those talks broke down again. So important to inject a little bit of skepticism here right off the top. But this deal that is being discussed, the the parameters of them go effectively as follows. Hamas would release somewhere between uh, 50 to maybe 70 uh, hostages. Uh, That is the number that they have put out as a possibility. Uh, Israel would, in exchange, release some Palestinian prisoners uh, and also agree to a ceasefire that could last as long as five days. But some of the major questions here still revolve around exactly how many hostages, exactly how many Palestinian prisoners. And, exactly how long uh, that potential ceasefire would last. We did see today, Jake, uh, in uh, Tel Aviv, uh, families of hostages beginning a five-day march to Jerusalem, uh, clearly trying to ramp up the pressure on the Israeli government to reach some kind of deal to
1: bring their loved ones home. And Nada, today uh, the United Nations says only one hospital in northern Gaza remains operational. The, The situation in Gaza is just so dire.
9: Absolutely, and it has been deteriorating for some time now, but clearly these hospitals are now on the brink of total collapse in northern Gaza. We heard earlier today from a British-Palestinian, Dr. Ghassan Abu who is in the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital. That is the last remaining functioning hospital in northern Gaza, and the situation there, as he described it, is catastrophic. Take a listen.
10: a number of pregnant women who today we were joined by an obstetrician gynecologist because we also have a number of pregnant women who needed cesarean sections we are doing extremely painful wound
5: procedures with no anesthetic because we don't have any left it's a very very bleak and difficult situation every raid we get more wounded and the hospital gets stacked up more and more with patients
9: Now, of course, Jake, there is huge concern around the situation also at the Al Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest hospital. As we know, there are hundreds of patients still in this hospital, which has run out of fuel supplies to power the hospital. It has run out of oxygen supplies, including in the neonatal unit. We saw that dramatic video, the shocking video, of premature babies being transferred from the neonatal unit where oxygen supplies had run out, being huddled together, wrapped in foil and blankets, trying to keep them warm so that they can uh, survive a huge amount of concern there. We know the IDF, the Israeli military, has said uh, they are looking to provide uh, support when it comes to providing incubators and an evacuation route potentially but no details just yet on what that evacuation route could look like and as we know there have been calls for civilians to evacuate for some time now but the situation around the hospital is unsafe as many doctors have said they are too afraid for their patients and for civilians to leave the hospital
1: Nana bashir jeremy diamond thanks to both of you coming up next why there's so much hype around president biden's meeting tomorrow with chinese president xi jinping stay with us President Biden arrived in California this afternoon for a meeting among the heads of state of the countries that border the Pacific Ocean. The real highlight will come tomorrow when President Biden will sit down with Chinese President Xi Jinping. They've met many times before, of course, but this time will be quite different. U.S.-China relations appear to be at their lowest point since both countries normalized relations in 1979. This year, we've seen the Chinese spy balloon drift over the U.S., extensive Chinese saber rattling, Military exercises around Taiwan, a summit between Xi and Russia's Vladimir Putin, and on and on and on. China's economy, however, is struggling in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Trump-era tariffs are still in place. Biden likes them. Pressure keeps building for the U.S. to ban the popular Chinese app TikTok. CNN's David Culver joins us now from San Francisco with a preview. Uh, David, what exactly are Biden and G specifically meeting about? What do they hope to get out of this meeting?
10: It's a bit overwhelming, Jake, when you listen to that list that you just went through of the points of contention between these two countries. I mean, where do you begin? What do you prioritize? How do you start a meeting like this? And for the U.S., that's generally where we start to see the messaging ahead of these meetings. That tends to be where the transparency is. And it seems to be their focus is on maybe seeing a crackdown on fentanyl, perhaps reestablishing communications between the two countries' militaries, maybe even something on climate. But you've got to take a step back from all of that and say the bigger focus is just going to be stopping the freefall, the downward spiral that is U.S.-China relations right now, bringing it to a level point, and perhaps this meeting, Jake, tomorrow is a start to that.
1: Both leaders, I have to say, need something of a win here, don't they? Both are in a much weaker position than they were during the, the last year meeting, uh, the last time they met in, in Bali.
10: So let's look at President Biden first. He's in campaign mode, right? So he's hoping, of course, to stabilize U.S.-China relations in this meeting, but at the same time, he cannot come across looking soft on China. For President Xi, it's a bit different in his path to leadership and sustaining that path in China. And he's coming off what was this time last year, a securing of a near unprecedented third term, making him the undisputed ruler there and perhaps setting the groundwork for him to rule for life. That said, as you pointed out earlier, China needs help right now. They are struggling economically. They have a housing marketing crisis. They have youth unemployment at record highs. And businesses, particularly American and other international businesses, are really hesitant to do business in China. And so that is something that President Xi is hoping to perhaps go on a charm offensive and woo them back, Jake.
1: Even though Biden and Xi need each other in a way here, it also seems like they can't really concede a clear win to the other.
10: Now, domestic optics are going to be everything for President Biden. It's in that same sense of campaign mode. The most popular sentiment, even amongst a divided U.S., is perhaps being tough on China, so he's got to sustain that. For President Xi, I mean, the messaging's a bit easier, quite frankly, I mean, state media is obviously heavily controlled. You've got social media in China that's tightly monitored and censored, so the immediate messaging will, of course, back in China, look like a win for President Xi. However, substance has to follow, and that is to say, if the economy continues to falter, will you risk social stability in China? And I can tell you that is one thing that the leadership, the Chinese Communist Party, is not willing to sacrifice, Jake.
1: Yeah, much easier to declare a win if you don't have any freedom of the press. David Culver, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now, David Axelrod, former senior advisor to, to President Obama. Uh, David, let's start with... a. Uh, all the foreign policy challenges that Biden has on his plate. He's got this meeting with China's President Xi. Um, Is he under more pressure to improve ties with Xi and get some deliverables, or or do you think to project strength?
4: Well, I think a little of both, Jake. Uh, As David said, this thing has been spiraling for several years now, and there's real danger. You talk about everything that's on his plate. You don't want to add a heightened crisis uh, with China. And you've seen a succession of cabinet members visiting China over the last several months, including the secretary of state to pave the way uh, for this conversation. You've also seen, by the way, you mentioned state media. State media has taken a decided turn in its attitude toward America in in, in uh, recent weeks and months. Well, weeks certainly uh, leading up to this meeting, which suggests to me that they understand, too, that they need certain things uh, from the United States. But you're quite right you can't look like you've been taken by the Chinese. And I'm pretty sure the president knows that and may plan for that. And uh, you're probably gonna have each of them coming away saying that they've uh, improved relations to the degree they could. They've taken some steps on some issues like fentanyl, for example, which would be good for Biden. Uh, And uh, no one's gonna go away with with, uh, a huge victory here.
1: Of course, the biggest foreign policy uh, item On his plate right now, President Biden's plate right now is is what's going on in the Middle East and and Israel's war against Hamas uh, and the catastrophe um, facing the Palestinian people in Gaza. Um, You were in the Obama White House, which Obama had famously or infamously frosted relations with Benjamin Netanyahu. Can you talk at all about that dynamic? and, and, And is there anything that you think President Biden should be doing differently right now?
4: Well, look, uh, I think President Obama came to office with a deep conviction that uh, that the status quo couldn't hold and that there needed to be a two-state solution uh, that had been talked about for decades. Uh, the first uh, visits he made, and I was there, was with uh, Arab leaders urging them to be helpful in bringing the Palestinians uh, on board for a two-state solution. But uh, as you know, uh, the prime minister was not eager for that, uh, and the settlement policy that his uh, his successive administrations has pursued has made that more and more of a remote possibility, and so that was a source of tension between the administration. By the same token, the Obama administration provided more military aid to Israel than any previous administration, maintaining their qualitative their qualitative military edge. So, uh, you know, on that score. Relationships were good, but on the issue of how to deal with the Palestinians and how to deal with this, uh, you know, large question of how you resolve this long-running uh, saga, uh, there was real tension.
1: And and what do you make of this moment we're in with rising anti-Semitism worldwide uh, and in the United States? There's obviously a spike in Islamophobia um, as well, which is which is horrific. But just in terms of uh, events, uh, statistically. The anti-Semitism is off the charts.
4: Yeah, Jake, I, you know, I, I'm speaking to you not just as the former senior advisor to the president, but also as the son of a refugee from Eastern Europe who fled during the pogroms. This kind of, uh, you know, this, the, the environment that I fear, uh, uh, you know, violence against Jews simply because of who they were uh, and uh, and chaos that reigned as a result of it. So. This, this has very, very um, significant echoes uh, to Jews in this country. And, you know, this is a global issue. Uh, you know, America a focal point, but uh, anti-Semitism has been on the rise for some time. Uh, so it's worrisome. Uh, you know, h- these echoes of history are worrisome uh, to American Jews and Jews around the world.
1: David Axelrod, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Coming up next, the first public comments from New York City Mayor Eric Adams about the federal investigation into his campaign fundraising. Is there a chance that Mayor Adams is potentially facing jail time? Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, New York City Mayor repeatedly saying today that he is fully cooperating with the FBI's investigation into his campaign fundraising. Eric Adams here.
4: As a former member of law enforcement, uh, it is always my review, it's always my belief, don't interfere with the ongoing review and don't try to do these reviews, uh, you know, through the press.
1: This after it was revealed last week that the FBI had seized Mayor Adams' phones and iPad, further escalating allegations of foreign money funneled to his campaign. Let's bring in CNN's John Miller, we should note, he was deputy commissioner of the NYPD, briefly working under Mayor Adams. He left in 2022. John, Mayor Adams and his administration are staying tight-lipped about this investigation. What are your sources
14: telling you about the investigation? Well, we're calling it an investigation. Uh, The mayor is calling it a review and calling the investigators reviewers. So it's more than that. And it's closer to the end now than it is to the beginning. Uh, This investigation has been going on eight months. They've gathered records that show employees and associates of a Brooklyn-based, Turkish-owned construction company gave donations to the Adams campaign and then got the money back, making them straw donors. Um, But what we don't know is, how is that connected beyond um, the individuals at that company or maybe people in the campaign to the mayor? So that is the part uh, we can't see. Could we seriously
1: be talking about the mayor of New York City facing jail time? Is that, is that
14: possible here? Well, anything's possible, but we're a long way away from it, meaning for that to happen. Um, and remember, I mean, to put this in context, they did seize the mayor's phones, his iPads, and they did so pursuant to a search warrant signed by a federal judge, which is based on the idea that there's probable cause to believe that there's evidence of illegal activity on those devices. So that takes us a step towards the mayor being a target, at least by, you could infer that, by the idea that they had the search warrant for his phones. However, he would still have to be charged. He hasn't been accused of wrongdoing. He would still have to be indicted. Uh, That would have to probably take a year between then and trial. And if they brought him to trial, they'd still have to make that case. So uh, we're a little ahead of ourselves there, but clearly they are looking at him hard and people around him even harder.
1: Meanwhile, on a separate matter, we're seeing new pictures today of the cocaine that was found inside the White House this summer here in locker number 50, right by the West Wing entrance. And yet to this day, the Secret Service claims that they have no idea who put it there.
14: So this boils down to a question of resources, really. What the Secret Service did is they (coughs) reviewed the um, video of people coming and going. Um, As you know, you don't have to sign up for the locker. You just, you know open the locker, you take the key. They dusted the locker for prints. They traced, they sent the package to the FBI lab to have it swabbed for DNA. They even tested the powder inside to make sure it was all cocaine and not something weaponized to affect people in the White House, either with fentanyl or anthrax or some foreign substance. But at the end of the day, They don't have a picture of who went to that locker, turned that key, may have left that package in there or how many people passed by it in between. And it just wasn't worth the continued investigative resources for a case where even if they identified the person um, under local law in Washington, D.C., it wouldn't have amounted to much. Hmm. John Miller, thanks so much. Appreciate it.
1: A live look at Capitol Hill now. We're getting close to what might be something of a defining moment for the brand new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. This is coming after a day of confrontation, Republican on Republican violence. It actually got physical. How will this all play out? And pass HR 63, Politics now, right now the House of Representatives is voting on a funding bill to avoid a government shutdown ahead of Friday's critical deadline. It is the first major leadership test for newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Let's bring back CNN's Manu Raju, who's on Capitol Hill with his Mike Wallace jacket. Uh, Manu, are there enough House Republicans and Democrats, for that matter, who will rally behind Speaker Johnson and pass what I believe is just basically a, a clean government spending bill?
5: Yeah, in fact, it is already has the votes to pass the House of Representatives. It has not been gaveled closed, but from what we can tell from our colleagues in the chambers, there's one minute remaining in this vote. They have enough votes to pass this. So this is going to be the big question. How many Republicans vote against it and how many Democrats support it? Democrats are getting behind it, Jake, because it does not include spending cuts. That's the reason why a lot of Republicans are voting against it. Democratic leaders have said that they would line up behind it. It does need two-thirds majority of the House to pass. It means 290 votes on the House floor. We do expect that to be exceeded because of Democratic support. The question is going to be the blowback that the new speaker may face for this because of the fact that he's using the same tactic that the former speaker Kevin McCarthy did to avoid a government shutdown back in October. What he did then? Pass a government funding bill without spending cuts, rely on Democrats to get it out of the House. That cost him his job. At the moment, Johnson's job is not insecure. He's secure. But there are still a lot of concerns a blowback from the right. As you hear jake they're calling the vote right now expected to pass the house then on to the senate likely in the next couple of days ultimately to the president's desk only kicking the can down the road jake january oh, and february the, the yays next yays deadlines yays. to avoid a shutdown
1: all right Ma- manuraju thank you so much and it sounds like uh, congressman womack is uh, saying that the yeas have it uh, let's bring in republican congressman john james uh, of michigan bang it just uh, he just uh gaveled it in and it passed uh, congressman uh Uh, James, thanks for joining us. You voted in support of Speaker Johnson's plan. He's putting forward a budget that would be approved by the Senate and the White House. So this basically, uh, I mean, I know he was just like thrust into this position. He didn't really have a choice here, delaying any bigger spending fight into next year. This just keeps the government open. Um, He does appear to be, at least for now, pushing aside the the harder right flank of the Republican conference. Uh, How do you see him negotiating and navigating this uh, in the future?
6: Well, bipartisanship shouldn't be controversial, especially when the reality states that we have a razor thin majority in the House, we have a Democrat Senate, and we have a Democrat president. Ultimately, if you say you care about the American people, well, Paying our Customs and Border Patrol agents is caring for the American people. Paying our military members and making sure our veterans maintain their, uh, their health care or mental health services is caring about the American people. Uh, working in a bipartisan manner to get this spending bill through so that we can get our conservative appropriations bills uh, through the house and then negotiate with the senate to make sure that we fund the government while we're also looking forward to the future so we're not bankrupting our children's futures is essential we have to walk and shoot gum at the same time i'm very proud to support this uh this uh continued funding so that we don't shut the government down
1: yeah everything you said just sounds completely sane so i'm really confused but uh okay <laughs> Uh, let's, let's move on to another matter, uh, which is not so sane, which is the, some dysfunction. Uh, Congressman uh, Bruchette uh, claimed uh, that he was elbowed in the kidneys uh, by former Speaker uh, McCarthy. And then on the Senate side, uh, uh, a U.S. senator stood up to uh, basically to, to fight a witness. Uh, here's that moment in the Senate. I don't know if you heard it earlier. This is uh, Senator uh, Mark Wayne Mullen. You want to do it now?
2: I'd love to do it right now.
1: Well, stand your butt up then.
2: You stand your butt up.
1: So I, I'm not going to hold you accountable for what goes on in the Senate. I know it's a whole other body. You guys, I don't even know if you're allowed to mention them, but, but what, what's going on with Kevin McCarthy, like shooting an elbow to the kidneys uh, of, of Congressman Burchette? There, there was even a witness to it, a, a reporter from NPR.
6: Yeah, I can't comment on that. I've spent most of my day uh, advocating for uh, uh, Israel aid and uh, and talking about what I saw when I was over in Tel Aviv, uh, talking with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, talking with the Defense Defense Minister and also uh, families of 240 hostages uh, that are behind enemy lines uh, held captive by Hamas. Uh, I'm I'm not uh, involved in that schoolyard uh, uh, stuff. Uh, we have the American people's uh, business to attend to. And that's where my focus is right now.
1: So let's talk about what you saw in Israel, um, which is obviously of more import than the schoolyard uh, nonsense, although offline you're going to have to tell me what you think. Um, but uh, what did you see in Israel that maybe you couldn't have understood or that you learned there that you wouldn't have gotten just from, from reading about it or talking on the phone from here? What, what stood out to you the most from your visit?
6: Uh, war is hell. Uh, and, and a lot of the things that I saw uh, while I was over there in, in video. Um, mirrored uh, what I saw when I was serving in Iraq in uh, OIF 0709, uh, the same heinous tactics uh, that uh, were deployed uh, by the people who are trying to kill American soldiers are deploying those same tactics against innocent uh, Israeli and Palestinian people. Uh, Hamas must absolutely be defeated, and Israel has the right to self-defense. But uh, one of the things that I was very heartened to hear is even uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, echoed his commitment. Uh, toward protecting innocent civilians, uh, innocent Palestinians and protecting uh, Israelis um, who are, are quite, quite rightly uh, fearful um, and, and, and desperately want to, uh, to bring their family members back, but also make sure this never happens again. So uh, we need to make sure that we give Israel the resources and funds they need to defend themselves and we need to work with our allies, most notably Egypt, that needs to be doing more, uh, and, uh, and do everything that we can uh, to uh, destroy Hamas uh, and, and continue moving the region forward. And I think expanding the Abraham Accords would be a great way to uh, continue to pursue peace in the region after uh, we, uh, we destroy Hamas and support Israel's efforts to defend themselves.
1: Well, let's hope the war ends soon, and uh, both Israel and the Palestinians are able to live in peace together sometime soon. I know we're all praying for it, Republican Congressman. John James of the great state of Michigan, thanks so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Keep it here for reaction to this vote on the Hill. We're back after this quick break. In our world lead, Iceland could face its its worst volcanic eruption in 50 years. Authorities have declared a state of emergency and ordered the evacuation of the small coastal town of Grindavik after observing magma swell toward the surface. But the town isn't the only thing in danger. A geothermal plant that powers the entire peninsula is only four miles away. Authorities are preparing to build a trench around the plant to prevent lava from reaching it. If you ever miss an episode of the lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts or coverage continues. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.
0: And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night.